You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, I'm going to invite you right off the bat, if you would please, to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we're going to see what the Lord has for us this morning. I've been looking forward to this passage for a very long time. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. This is God's word. Sometimes it has to get very, very dark so that we can see the lights. Sometimes things have to get very, very simple and very, very um, uncomplicated so that we can see very clearly. I've lived now in East Texas, uh, gosh, for over 13 years. Before that, we lived in Houston for 12 years. But I am from the Texas Panhandle, where we only got electricity about 12 years ago. It's true. And at night, it gets incredibly dark out in the panhandle. All the lights go out, and you can step outside, and you can see through time. You can see stars forever away. Sometimes it has to get very, very dark before we can see the lights that are around us. Or perhaps, sometimes things have to get very, very precisely painful before our minds that are generally fixed on the temporary, on the ethereal, become eternally minded. Perhaps you've gotten that phone call from your doctor. 
or perhaps there's been a knock on your door very early in the morning. And suddenly the things with which you were so concerned begin to lose their steam. I've told this story before. I'll tell it again very briefly. I can remember two and a half years ago having had a pretty significant heart attack laying there and suddenly having these questions. What's going to happen to my sons if this goes south? What's going to happen with my wife if this goes badly? And I suddenly didn't care all that much that the Cowboys weren't going to make the playoffs again. Sometimes it's like that. This morning we get to hear something pretty profound about a very dark time in the, in the life of a man and in, in the status of a nation. We've started a new sermon series called The Attributes of God. All of that in hopes that all of us will come, that we will think more Clearly, we'll feel more deeply about our God. That's our focus for the month of May and into the summer, that we would think more precisely and accurately about our God. Because, we say this all the time, I want to say it again, like A.W. Tozer has said, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so my hope, my prayer, my preparation for this morning is that all of us, having come into contact with this passage, will think more clearly will feel more deeply about this God. Now then, we are um, studying these different attributes of God. One of the things, as we've already read through Isaiah 6, is we've come into contact with the God that is described here, leads us finally, hopefully, clearly, and to a certain extent, catastrophically to our big idea for the morning, and it simply goes like this. God is holy. God is holy. God is holy. We want to unpack that if we can this morning. So I'm going to start over from the beginning and just go to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Start from the very beginning. Here's what Isaiah says. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now there's a lot here, so I've got to spend a little bit of time. In the year that King Uzziah died. This is Isaiah chapter 6. The first five chapters of the book of Isaiah have been all about Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord, denouncing the southern kingdom of Judah for their uh, apostasy, for their detachment, for their departure from the Lord, from their covenant unfaithfulness, for their covenant disobedience. All of these different um, condemnations that God has spoken for five solid chapters. It's gotten really, really bad. See, the nation of Israel has been split into 150 years earlier following King Solomon. The nation is split, 10 northern tribes, two southern tribes. And things descend quickly in immorality, in all sorts of irreligiosity, all sorts of idolatry and wickedness. Things go from bad to worse in a very quick moment. And not only that, God is very frustrated with his people because they simply do not trust him. They think him too small. They think him disinterested. They think him disengaged. They think he does not know. They think he does not care. But in the midst of all of that immorality and wickedness and pagan idolatry, at least there was one good guy. It's very rare in the Old Testament for a king to be called good, but God actually calls Uzziah a good king. He was crowned king at the age of 16, and he rules for 52 years. That is astonishing. The average life expectancy in that day and age, the middle of the 8th century BC, is about 38, 39 years old. 
This guy lives to 68 years old, and he probably would have lived longer had his life not ended in horrible immorality and sin and collapse. Now, you can read all about the life of Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. Won't go into it right now in a lot of detail, but I'll just summarize it for you. Uzziah is a good king. He has led a lot of reforms. He's torn down some of the high places of his predecessors. He's been a tremendous builder, bolstering the infrastructure of the nation. And he has been a good leader. So in the midst of all else that's gone wrong, at least Uzziah is a good guy. But the Assyrian Empire, the superpower of the day, begins to exert pressure from the north. And in fact, in about 17 years, they would come through and they would completely eradicate the 10 northern tribes and carry all of them off into exile. The Assyrians were very, very frightening. And they were the power of the day. And so as they begin to exert pressure from the north, King Uzziah, well, he presumes too much. And this king enters the temple himself and he burns incense, which was a great egregious offense. And 80 priests rush this guy and say, oh king, you must not do this. This is wrong. It is not for you to do the work of a priest. Why is this such a big deal? Because it is such a big deal. There is only one priest king and he will not be fully revealed for another 740 years. The king is not the priest and the priest is not the king. That union of offices reserved for only one being. Well, the 80 priests confront King Uzziah in the temple. He's not permitted to enter, but he does. And rather than repent and say, you're right, I'm trying to force God to act here because the Assyrians are coming. We've got to do something. Rather than repent, his anger burns. And so God strikes him with leprosy on the spot. They watch as it breaks out on his forehead and consumes him. And so the priests now have to take him out of the temple. He loses his throne. He loses his community. He loses his society of gathering with the people for worship. He loses everything. So the nation has descended into idolatry and wickedness. The Assyrians are coming. And the one good leader that existed in all of Israel, he has now died. The nation is under threat. It's about to implode. And Isaiah has not only lost his king, but tradition holds very strongly that he's probably also lost his uncle. Isaiah's father was brother to the king, or so we think. Things are getting very dark, but it is in that darkness that Isaiah is going to have a vision. It is in that crisis that the temporary things are going to be stripped away, and Isaiah is going to have a vision of the eternal. So we're going to break up this chapter into three sections. We're going to try to tackle this very quickly. Isaiah chapter 6 can be broken up into three parts. First, we have the holiness of God. I've already read the whole chapter. You can see that. The holiness of God. Then we're going to read about the humility of the servant. Massively important. There's a progression here. The holiness of God, the humility of the servant, and finally we'll see the hardness of the message. So let me pick back up in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1b, and we'll walk right through this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This is very subtle, but we're not supposed to miss it. In the year the king died, I saw the king. Isaiah wants us to understand that Uzziah has died, just like every other king and politician and ruler and tyrant ever. They die. Even though he reigned for 52 years, the king is dead, but I saw the king. And not only that, he is seated upon a throne in the temple. Now that's interesting. 
King Uzziah was not permitted to enter the temple, but this king is in the temple and he is seated. That's interesting. This is a priest king, apparently. But the priest was never permitted to sit down in the temple because, well, for starters, there's no chair. There's no furniture for sitting down. Why is there no furniture for sitting down? Because the work of the priest is never done. He's always interceding on behalf of the people. But this priest king is seated on a throne in the temple. And apparently the temple is somewhat changed. The dividing wall between the holy place and the holy of holies has been removed. And God, the Lord, Adonai here, has moved to the front of the house. He's no longer back merely dwelling upon the Ark of the Covenant. He has moved to the front of the house on full display. And Isaiah is transported to the temple and he has this vision. The king is dead, but I saw the king high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Well, we usually translate this word train, but it's, it's shul in Hebrew. In this day and age, 8th century BC, no dignitaries, no kings, no rulers, no monarchs are wearing long trains on their robes. Most probably, this is the hem of his garment. Just the hem. And so we get the visual picture that Isaiah is face down. He is prostrate, straining his eyes just to look up. And the largest building he can conceive of in existence is the temple of God in Jerusalem. He's face down and he's looking up and just the hem of his garment completely fills the temple. In other words, this God is big. You can write that down. God is big. See, there had become a thought in that day that God was little and portable and user-friendly because he must dwell between those two cute little cherubim that sit on the Ark of the Covenant. God must dwell right there. He's portable. He's easy. He's comfortable. He's tame. He's small. But in the midst of this crisis, Isaiah has a vision and he sees how bigly God actually is. Just the, the hem of his garment fills the entire temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Most of our English translations don't try to translate this because there's no translation for it. Above him stood the burning ones. It's from the Hebrew word sarap that comes from Numbers 21, which is the exact same word as the fiery serpents that were sent to bite the children of Israel when they were in disobedience, which has led some people to say, well, these must be like massive flaming serpent things flying around God's head. Okay, we don't know that, but sure, if that helps you visualize it, go for it. We don't know how many of them there are, but this is the only time in Scripture we will ever be told of or read about the seraphim these burning ones, and they're apparently awesome beings, and they're standing above the Lord's head, not because they're above him in stature, no, 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 because they stand and they are perched, ready to serve and to obey. Here's what we do know about them. We don't know how many of them there are, but they have six wings. Two, with two, they cover their faces, a sign of humility. These are perfect holy beings who have never experienced sin themselves, created in purity and holiness. And yet even they, awesome beings though they are, cannot bear to look directly on the countenance of God. So they cover their faces. And with two, he covered his feet. More than likely that means he covered his entire body as a sign of uh, humility, as a sign of subservience. I'm not even gonna expose my feet or my body to you. And with two, he flew as a demonstration of the speed with which they served this priest king who is seated mightily in the throne. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Or your Bible might say, is the Lord Almighty. We know that these seraphim apparently speak Hebrew because it's Kadosh, 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 Yahweh Tzavaot. Kadosh, 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 Yahweh Tzavaot. And they keep saying it over and over and over. Because it's new information, because God doesn't know, because they don't know, no. Because it is worship to tell God things that are true about Him. Of all of the attributes of God, it is the only attribute of God that is ever repeated three times. While it is true that God is love, you will never see God is love, love, love. While it is true that God is a jealous God, you will never see that He is jealous, jealous, jealous. God is holy, holy, holy. But what does this word mean, holy? If it's our attribute that we're studying this morning, what does the word holy mean? Well, believe me when I tell you, I have been reading for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I can tell you with complete clarity and conviction that nobody knows. Nobody knows exactly. There is no accurate definition. Holy is in itself the adjective of God alone. For only God is God and therefore only God is actually holy. People have said, well, holy, it must mean like separate or cut off because etymologically the root of the word kadosh means to separate or to cut off. But that's a problem. That's not what it most likely means. That's like saying, hey, she's a nice person and what you really mean is she's an ignorant person. No, you don't mean that, but that's the actual Latin origin of the word nicius, nice, is ignorant, but it has changed through time. And so by the time the word is used in Isaiah, the word kadosh does not mean to separate or to cut. It means something different entirely. And we certainly don't think that the seraphim are flying around going, separate, separate, separate is the Lord of the armies of heaven. Now that doesn't seem to make sense because he's not separate because he has moved to the front of the house and he's on full display. He has proximity with Isaiah. Well, some people have said, well, then it must mean pure or moral. So is that it, really? Is that the, the seraphim, these massive creatures whose voice shakes the foundations of the earth? They're walking around, or they're flying around going, moral, moral, moral is the Lord of the armies of heaven. No, I don't think so. So what does it mean? Well, what it means is intended to be taken together with what Isaiah is experiencing. What he is seeing, what he is hearing, what he is feeling, all of those things together help us get a glimpse of what holy means. Here's my best definition of holy. Ready? It goes like this. Gaudy. I don't mean G-A-W-D-Y. I mean G-O-D-Y. Gaudy. It's what God is. He's holy. He's God-y. It's been said that God's holiness is His glory concealed. That His glory is His holiness revealed. But there is none who is like God. He is Godi. He is uniquely God. God is ultimately committed. He is devoted or He is consecrated to His purpose. That's part of what God is like. Is He is fully Committed. Yes, he is a trillion, trillion times moral and pure. Yes, he is different. He is other. But more than that, he is gaudy. He is who he is, and he will accomplish what he will accomplish with zero distraction, with zero hesitation, with zero interruption. He is devoted. He is committed. He is consecrated. Now, why am I saying that? Because again, I went to seminary 
Took me five years, took most people three or four, took me five. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but here's what I figured out in seminary was this, that Isaiah chapter six comes immediately after chapter five. It's true. Six comes right after five. And in Isaiah 1 through 5, we have learned that the holiness of God has caused him to be angry at the, at the, the wickedness and the oppression of his people. Primarily and principally, the people's oppression of one another. Wickedness and violence one against another. And he says in chapter 5, I am holy and I will act. It's the same idea when he says, you shall honor your mother and your father. I am the Lord. Because of who I am and my dedication, devotion, commitment, and consecration, I will act on this. We have to understand that's his godness, his holiness, is his fierce commitment, consecration, devotion to act according to his character. That's part of what it means to be holy. He is fully devoted to godness. Now that's interesting when we think about there's other things in the Bible that are also called holy, i.e. the shovel at the altar is called holy, but it's just a shovel. Ah, but that shovel is fully devoted to, it is fully God's. It is fully dedicated to God's use and for no other purpose. And so that shovel can be called holy. And then in the book of Leviticus and in 1 Peter, it says, you and I are to be holy because he is holy. Does that mean I'm supposed to be separate and cut off? No. Does that mean I'm supposed to be perfectly moral and pure? No, that's an impossible weight to bear. No, no. But I am to be fully devoted, committed, consecrated to, mm, how does Jesus put it? Let me see. To love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. That's holy. Do you see? And that's what God is, fully devoted to his own godliness and his own holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. Well, picking up verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him. In this case, this is each one of the seraphim who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This is more than likely a representation of the same kind of pillar of smoke that led the children of Israel in the Exodus as they were coming across the wilderness. The presence of God is here. There is a quake. There's literally an earthquake at the presence of God. And that earthquake produces something. We've seen the holiness of God. Now we're going to see the humility of the servant. As the earth is quaking, now we're going to see Isaiah quake. Isaiah is going to have himself a soul quake. And I said, woe is me. Now this is intended to be emotionally stirring. Again, I want to remind you that for five chapters, Isaiah has been saying, Woe to you, Israel! Woe to you, Judah! Woe to you! Woe to you! But then Isaiah sees the Lord. And he says, I am coming undone. Woe to me! This is, technically, this is a curse. May I die! I am coming apart at the atomic level. I cannot stand, I cannot be in his presence. And his confession is that he is a man of unclean lips and he lives among a people of unclean lips. Now this is a very instructive reaction. Some of you may remember, wow, 18 years ago, we had 9-11 occur in this country. And there were two very prominent American pastors, very well known, who publicly and fervently said that what had happened with the Twin Towers was a result of what is happening in our country with respect to homosexuality, sexual sin, and abortion. 
Now, were they wrong? Or were they right? Yes and no. Which means they were totally wrong. There's no question that the Bible says repeatedly in both Testaments that God does judge people and nations in the near term for their wickedness and for their sin, particularly their violence against one another. Yes, there is judgment. God speaks through war, the Old Testament makes plain. But he also judges ultimately at the end of the age. But here's the problem. They were roundly ridiculed and they were soundly scolded for calling out the sin of other people, of a particular group of people. And so, about six days later, they both had to publicly apologize and made matters much, much worse, made matters much, much more muddy. That is not what Isaiah does. It's quite interesting. Isaiah has an entirely different reaction. Isaiah the first thing he does, having pronounced the woes and the wickednesses of all of Israel, he has this vision, and the first thing he does is says, woe is me. I am the chief culprit. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And see, that's the point. Anybody that has gotten an accurate picture of God will not be so quick to point out the sin of somebody else. And so if you see someone roundly criticizing the sin of those people, you can pretty much be sure they have not gotten an accurate picture of God very recently. Because one who sees God for who he is, what he is like, face plants like Isaiah and says, woe is me, I am sin. That's the soul quake. And we find ourselves in that situation. We want to be very, very careful. Why does Isaiah react this way? Well, he tells us right there. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh, Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts. All he does is speak the confession. That's all he does. I want to give you the gospel according to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6. Isaiah voices his sin. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. I just want you to know, there's no way Isaiah knows how this is going to go. He sees God and his ultimateness, his godness, his holiness, his perfection, his purity, his glory. He sees these seraphim flying around and they're awesome beings. And he takes a burning coal from the altar and he's just admitted his error. Isaiah has to be thinking, this is where I die. And rightly so. This is where I die. And he touched my mouth, verse 7, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Please notice, Isaiah makes no request. God, please save me! No, no, he simply says, I am sin! And immediately God dispatches one of these seraphs, flies to him, makes atonement, removes his sin takes away his guilt. God initiates this in Isaiah. This is an altar coal. This is not from the burning incense. Incense does not produce coals. This means it is from the altar where something innocent has given its life, something innocent has died and shed its blood so that this guilty could be atoned for. God intervenes and takes away. Now, I love the fact the angel of the seraphim has to tell Isaiah, hey, this has touched your mouth. I'm betting Isaiah knew at that point when a burning coal touches your face and it's delivered by whatever this thing looks like, this flaming serpent with six wings. You don't have to be reminded that that just happened. But he explains to him, atonement has been made. And not only that, 
Atonement has been made. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So we've had the holiness of God. We've had the humility of the servant, which is going to lead us now to the hardness of the message. And I heard the voice, verse 8, of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? This is not a reference to the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not been revealed to Isaiah. This is God allowing Isaiah to overhear a conversation in the heavenly courtroom, in the heavenly throne room scene. Who will go? And you got to have an understanding of what Isaiah has just experienced. He is guilty. He's confessed sin. His guilt has been taken away. He is new. He is able to stand. He has right relationship with God in his presence. And God says, who will go? And Isaiah looks around and he says, can I please go? Please hear the tone that Isaiah says this with. It's not, though all else fail you, Lord, I will never fail you like Peter. No, 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 no. He recognizes that he is guilty and he has been made guiltless. I said, here I am, send me. And then God's going to give Isaiah the absolute worst ordination service in all history. He says, Isaiah, this is how your ministry is going to go. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah, you're going to preach the truth. You're not going to dress it up. You're not going to use a limerick. You're not going to even use alliteration. You're just going to tell the hard truth and they're not going to listen. I don't want them to listen. I have pronounced judgment and I am holy, holy, holy. I am devoted. I am committed. I am consecrated to act. There has been wickedness. I will judge this. You pull no punch. They will not listen. Where do we get a flicker of this? Well, we just finished a sermon series in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John chapter 8, we find Jesus on Temple Mount saying to the Jewish people, because I tell you the truth. You do not believe. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6. Because I tell you the truth. Not although I tell you the truth. Not just in case. No, no, no. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. God says to Isaiah 740 years earlier, Isaiah, you will go. You will tell them the truth and they will not believe because I want them judged. That God makes it very clear that he raises up the Assyrians to judge them. And then he judges the Assyrians for how they do it. Now put that in your sovereignty pipe and smoke it. Hmm. Verse 11, then I said, well, maybe if this is only for a year or two, maybe if this is only for a, a decade, maybe if it's only for a generation, how long, O oh Lord? And he said, huh, until cities lie waste without inhabitant. And houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, which he does. There's exile after exile. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain, it too will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak. Ah, from hopelessness to hope. Here at the very end of the chapter. Whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. God will bring life from this death. God is holy. He is fully devoted. He is committed. He is consecrated to his godness, to his holiness. So what? 
Why do we care in 2019 sitting in East Texas? Well, this attribute of God, I think, is incredibly pertinent and practical for every one of us. So let me just give three very quick principles, three very quick implications for this. Number one goes like this. A right view of God produces a right view of sin. Missionaries, evangelists, pastors, people who share their faith all over the world will tell you that in our day and age, in the 21st century, the hardest thing to get people to understand is the concept of their own sin. It's really sort of fascinating. I have an opportunity to talk to a bunch of different people, and it's interesting. People don't really balk at the teaching of the resurrection. I'll say, that's, that's your religion, that's your faith. You believe that somebody was alive, they died, and they rose again? Okay, great. People don't really have an issue who are outside of the faith. They don't have an issue with the doctrine of the Trinity. You say your God is three beings, three persons, one God, one essence. Okay, fine. I don't care. That's fine. That's what your religion holds. Great. Good for you. You tell people that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. They don't even care that the math doesn't work out. Fine. That's what you believe. Good for you. That's what your book says. Awesome. But when you try to convince people of the existence of their sin, then fists clench and knuckles get white. Nobody believes that they are without error, you understand, but to say that they have sin that prevents them from ever having right standing or peace with God, that's what chaps people severely. Now what's fascinating, and here's the great grand irony of this passage, the best way to get people to understand the doctrine of sin is to not bludgeon them across the face with morality. You tell people, stop doing that, you shouldn't do that, all they want to do is it more. Adam and Eve's problem in the garden was not a lack of knowledge. Beating people upside the head and face with law only makes them abuse it more. No, no, no. The best way to get people to understand the reality of their sin is to give them a picture of a holy God. Isaiah's a good guy. He's a royal. He's inside. He's a moral person. But he sees God and the first thing he does is say, my God, my God, I'm coming apart at the atomic level. But you can't get people to understand the need for a savior if you can't get them to understand sin. We can't agree with the what the solution is if we don't agree with what the problem is. And so it is a right view of God that produces a right view of sin. This passage shows us that to help people understand the enormity of their sin, we have to show them a picture of who God is, that he is holy, which leads me to number two. It goes like this. Regular worship produces a right view of God. I want you to see the progression here. Regular worship produces a right view of God. Look, left to our own devices, every single one of us will degenerate into some really errant beliefs about God. This is one of the many reasons why church and regular gathering together is so important. All of the great grand heresies of history started with one individual, usually a guy, sitting by himself with his Bible. And he says, hey, look, I figured this out. Nobody else has ever seen this before. And he develops a great grand heresy. No, no, no. We have to do theology in community. Should you pray by yourself? Of course. Should you read your Bible by yourself? Of course. Should you have quiet times by yourself? Of course. But if that's all you ever do, you are only a few steps away from falling into a great grand error. And look, you've all known people like this. I have family like this that say, I don't need to go to church. I, I know the stories. I've heard all the little tales. I get it about Noah. I get it about Jonah. I've heard the stories. And I say, no, tell me about God. 
What do you think about God? What is he like? Have you seen him? Do you think about him? What comes into your mind when you think about him? Because if you're not thinking regularly and rightly about this God, you are on a fast train to sin and depravity. Oh, I don't need that. You do desperately. Isaiah is invited to the temple to catch a glimmer and a glimpse of the glory of his God and it gives him a soul quake. Regular worship produces a right view of God. We are to come together. This is why we don't just come together and talk about grandparents and we don't talk about gardening. We don't talk about environmentalism. We just sort of want to assume that God is and then let's start talking and helping each other out live our lives practically. No! You know what the very best thing for your marriage is? You seeing God accurately. You know what the very best thing for your kids is? You seeing God for who he is. That's why we do what we do. We want to read God's word and catch a glimmer and a glimpse of who he is. So again, number one, a right view of God produces a right view of sin. Number two, regular worship produces a right view of God. Number three, well, this is going to be circular and that's okay. A right view of sin produces regular worship. (laughs) These are all supposed to be connected, do you see? Yes, it's a circular argument by design. When we begin to grasp the enormity of sin before a holy God, we react like Isaiah and we have a soul quake. We say, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? And in humility, we have recognition of his glory, of his goodness and his grace. And then, just like Isaiah, regardless of our perception of outcomes, regardless of our fear of rejection, regardless of our fear of being perceived as the weird guy in the group, we say, here my Lord, would you just give me opportunities to talk about who you are and what you have done for me? The answer is already yes. A right view of sin when I recognize my own depravity and the depth thereof, all I want to do is to come together with other people who have been redeemed by the Lamb and say so. Now, here's the absolutely amazing thing about all of this. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the beings around him pronounced, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, the Lord of the armies of heaven. Now, some of you will remember that in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and in verse 41, John tells us that the one Isaiah sees is actually Jesus. I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus, but the one Isaiah sees in chapter six, 740 years earlier, is Jesus, the ultimate priest king. And here's the real head scratcher. Isaiah has this vision of a pre-incarnate Jesus and the hem of his robe fills the temple. But then we know that that one who was seated high and lifted up himself becomes the burning coal. And he dies sheds innocent blood for the sake of the guilty. That one says, I am holy, holy, holy. I will judge. I will eradicate. I will stamp out the wickedness and I will be the one to receive the judgment. Now that's the kind of God that is holy, holy, holy. Now, if you're here this morning and you're still trying to find multiple paths up the mountain, I challenge you, I double-dog dare you to find a faith construct that is as glorious and as good as our God. And I invite you to believe it. If you're here this morning and you've been a believer for a very long time, I want to dilate your pupils and, like Isaiah, help every single one of us to have a more accurate picture of what our God is like. He is holy, 
holy, holy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in this passage. And we pray, God, that you would continue to scrub our notion of you, that we would think rightly about you, that we would feel deeply about you. We would love you ever increasingly. It has been said, and it's correct, that we are what we love. And so may we love you more. May we be holy as you are holy. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.